and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Heidi White. Angelina, Heidi, welcome back to the show. How are, how are you? I'm doing great. Yeah. We're, we're great. We're definitely not laughing at everything we just talked about. That didn't yeah. there. Previously, yeah, exactly. Whenever we have a really good pregame talk, I always feel like I'm starting the show kind of, you know, awkwardly, like, hee hee hee. You guys, I wish you heard that. Could you do that again? (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere between like a flirtatious squirrel and an awkward four year old. which that's actually pretty much what Jeremiah is now that I think about it. So um, we are here to talk about Crossing the Safety Chapters 11 through 13. We are concluding part one. Um, before we do that, though, quick reminder, we have another show on this Close Reads Podcast Network. In fact, we have two other shows. We are currently working our way through King Lear over on the Plays the Thing. So if you are if you like Shakespeare or if you don't like Shakespeare but need someone to kick you in the head repeatedly, then you should... <laughs> Head over to the place thing for our conversation of King Lear. That is Tim McIntosh, Matt Bianco, and myself. We are uh, we have gone through Act Two, and we will be uh, Act Three will be going up next week. So uh, catch that. We also have our the Daily Poem Show. Uh, we are concluding our first week of that, and the best review I've ever gotten. Well, maybe not the best review I've ever gotten, but the best one of the best reviews I've ever gotten on a podcast was when somebody commented today that. Their son liked their eleven-year-old son liked the poem so, so much that. that he wanted to now memorize the poem. I actually uh, now to be fair, I actually didn't see that comment because it's a rule in my life not to look at comments on podcasts. However, um, I was told that by multiple people, so I'm. It might have been some people around the office here, including my mom, trying to just make me feel good about myself. I don't know, but <laughs> um, in the event that that's not the case, uh, thank you to everyone who's been listening and um, uh, incorporating it into your daily school life or your commute or. Uh, you know, however you 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 are using the show, thank you for that. And um, if you are not already listening to the Daily Poem, you can find that on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, and YouTube, uh, or wherever else you get you get podcasts. So, um, the Daily Poem, the Place, the Thing, Shakespeare, Poetry, the Close Reads Podcast Network, and that is the end of my sentences without verbs. <laughs> Always Let's, unscripted, close reads. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Always unscripted. <laughs> Hashtag close reads. Um, also, um, we do have a Twitter account. So if you want to get in on that, you can follow us at close reads pods. Um, and we are giving away some books and some, some other things like that over on that page. So follow us there and follow the former journal uh, Twitter account. And you'll have a chance to um, when, for example, Karen Swallow Pryor's new book called On Reading Well, if you're interested in that. So those Twitter accounts are a good place to um, to uh, get, you know, tied in stuff. and roped in and get all the stuff. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk crossing to safety. There is a Eurydice reference <laughs> early on. What? Really? I have no idea. <laughs> and Heidi did mention this uh, off the air. But um, let's uh, let's talk about that. Uh, there's lots of stuff I want to talk about. There's lots of conversation that was happening um, on the Facebook page. Um, some things that I promised that we would bring up. But um, this Eurydice reference, it is Larry referring to Sally as Eurydice as she's loading up to leave for you know several months. So 
I figured we have to let Angelina talk about Eurydice mm-hmm. and why, how this, how did this strike you? Like, what did it mean to you, Angelina, as our resident myths, fairy tales <laughs> person? Well, Eurydice is the wife of Orpheus. Uh, and that myth is one of my favorites. It probably is my favorite, actually. Um, so Orpheus, uh, Orpheus and Eurydice get married. And on their wedding day, she is bitten on the heel by a snake and she dies. And Orpheus is so consumed with grief by this that he travels down to Hades itself to ask if he can get his bride back. Uh, He has a conversation with Hades in which he agrees that he can take her back on one condition, that as he's leading her out of Hades, he may not look back. And of course he does. And the last thing he sees is his bride being ripped from him and taken back to Hades. So when I read the Eurydice reference, I read it as, you know, he, well, again, the story's told in flashback, so he already knows what's going to happen at the end of part one. Mm-hmm. So I read it as a, a foreshadowing that something was going to happen and he was going to feel unable to save her from it. Hmm. Did you, what do you, uh, um, I was thinking about the idea of him being, Orpheus, what do you, how do you, um, do you, do you take anything from that? Like him referring to himself sort of as Orpheus? That's, I guess that's the only way I can think of. Uh, um, well, Orpheus is the harpist and the poet. So, you know, the writer, that makes sense. Orpheus, uh, so after he loses Eurydice, Orpheus wanders around and he's cursed by the gods and different stories have him doing different things. One of them, he's ripped to bits by animals. Um, but, you know, he's filled with self-loathing over this failure to be able to rescue his bride. Hmm. Hmm. It is interesting um, that this is where I think the literary quality of Stegner one of the ways it stands out because he can drop, you know, well, and a lot of, I mean, not just Stegner, this happens all the time um, in great books, um, particularly contemporary novels. The literary merit stands out because you see um, the way subtle references can point to things, future things in the story, can foreshadow things, can mm-hmm. can help us understand characters uh, more richly. Um so I think, I think that's, it's a really, it's, you know, there's a subtlety to the way he does this. So he can draw on the the literary tradition, even on the archetypes here and there, but not in a way that's like, um, grandstanding or, you know, um, there, there's a subtlety to it and there's a, just a kind of literary, a literary, a literary subtlety to it. I think a poetry to it that is really interesting and, and really nice. What, what, one of, uh, one of the things that struck me most uh, was Larry comparing he and Sally to Orpheus and Eurydice while he compared Charity and Sid to Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. They're wandering naked in, in the garden, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's clearly they're Adam and Eve. Uh, and uh, I mean, so you got two tragic doomed couples. Although he does come back around interestingly and say that, so this is in chapter 13, that there should have been two Adams and Eves. If I had to give you any advice to God, I would have had him put two couples <laughs> in there, which is interesting because you you could think about like, if there had been two couples, what would have happened? Like hmm. if there had been two Adams and the uh, two. Clearly charity would have pulled out a guidebook and said, don't eat the apple. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> hey, Richard Heidi. says don't eat the apple. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, hmm. We could, we could talk about that for a while, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. About what Stegner's doing there. But Heidi, what, what do you think of the Eurydice thing there? Um, as I said, you know, there's clear references to, to, to the, to the literary tradition um, mm-hmm. and, and to some of the archetypes. Um, but again, do you, do you agree with me that there's a subtlety that to that that's really nice? I, I absolutely agree. I loved that. I just uh, need people I'll, to affirm, affirm. Yes, me, so. I absolutely do. Yes. I, I, just thought it was just so simple too. It's just, yeah. it's just Eurydice, one sentence. There's a sentence without a verb, David. So mm-hmm. it's that, just this novel to what we've been talking about for several weeks is just so beautifully structured. Uh, all the, the focus, the attention has been on Charity and Sid, but that tells us, just gives us this little clue, if you catch it, that it's Sally who's threatened. Sally that's been in danger this whole time. Something is about to happen to this marriage. It's coming. And, you she's, know, go ahead, so sorry. she's going away, right? This is, that's what happened to Eurydice. She went away from Orpheus and he had to go get her. And then it has this like very long archetypal journey. Here's all these archetypes in these chapters, Angelina. He's on this long archetypal journey. It takes forever for him to get there. And it's really kind of boring to read. And yes, and all these things are happening as he's going towards this wife who is, yeah, yeah. And Eden, it was just woven together. So beautiful. I read these chapters a lot of times this week and I kept talking to every single person I knew who'd who'd (laughs) read it. So um, um, anyway, I loved these chapters. The Eurydice reference was so simple and perfect. One thing that I like that he he adds to this is where he he talks about, and then he kind of makes fun of himself for it later, but he talks about how he sort of halfway suspected uh, um, Sid of trying to seduce her. Sid and Sally, yeah. So it's almost like Sally or Sid Sid becoming like a sort of Hades character or something and that he's going to be, she's going to be stolen from. I don't know. There's, he drops these little references in there. Of course he ends up making fun of himself for them um, because he's, he's at least somewhat self-aware. Um, right. When he references the serpent uh, entering Eden, that has the double meaning because it's, it's for both myths. It's for the Adam and Eve myth and for the Orpheus and Eurydice myth. That's and I'm using point. myth in the literary term, not the theological term before I get burned in effigy. I'm using, I'm using <laughs> simply means a, a, an origin story, you know, right, to use right. it. Uh, like so that's why C.S. Lewis says Christianity is true myth. Myth is simply the name of a genre. It does not imply truth or falsehood. So, anyway, right, 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 right. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good. Um, Clarify. Yeah. Distinction. Then he and he keeps talking about. He even refers to um, where they're going as Arcadia. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, she frolicked in Arcadia, which mm-hmm. took shape as a great place, a place of great tranquility and order. Uh, and the, the constant references to the order of the place are interesting. And even in, within the order of the, of the place itself, Charity's constantly trying to add her own order to it, which I thought, I thought was very uh, telling of her. Like so he's, he's pointing out that this is a place that is fundamentally full of order, but right. she's not satisfied with that kind of order. Mm-hmm. Charity's not. Yeah, her, right. Does she call it productive or constructive daydreaming? Which word is it? I thought it was um, constructive. Is it constructive daydreaming? Right. There's he so goes many. back to that at the end, right? It doesn't matter how many mornings you sit up with your notebook. That's you right. You can't plan everything. Right. But these, I, I liked these chapters um, for what it did. 
I mean, I, I think we have Sid and Charity's characters fully developed at this point. Um, and obviously this is a huge turning point in the story. Uh, but I did like kind of the focus on this alternating or oscillating glory and darkness of Charity's management of their life. He, he honors it just as much as he then becomes frustrated and attacking towards it. Um, in chapter, in chapter 13, chapters 11 and 12 are a lot about how good she is at it and how enjoyable she makes their life. Um, it isn't just judgment. There's a lot about the glory, uh, of that aspect of her. Mm. That's yeah, that's good. That it starts out by pointing out, you know, their appreciation for, for her. Yes. And how much she's done for them and how grateful they are. Uh, and it doesn't seem that kind of like backhanded gratitude. It seems genuine. Like they're so grateful that she is advocating for their well-being with Uncle Richard specifically. Mm. Do you come out of these chapters? Um, do you come out of these chapters sort of annoyed with Sid? No, I don't. Angelina, were you were you yelling at him like just listen to her, or were you yelling at her leave him alone? I wish this book could inspire any of those kinds of passion. <laughs> well, but when you so you didn't so you didn't think for one second. Why are you talking to him like that? Or whatever, however. Uh, you know, I've really struggled this week to figure out what I want to publicly say <laughs> because I. Because I do not believe that a reader's experience is paramount, right? Um, well, who, like like Lewis says, your exp your experience with the book probably says more about you than it does about the book itself. And and so you know, I've tried to sort of divide it into two things in my mind, but uh, the the time simply maybe <laughs> come for me to to make confessions. I am I am struggling with this book, guys. I am really really struggling. I cannot connect with this book at all. I cannot. I just don't care about these characters. I, I don't, I'm not compelled by them. I don't want to know. I just, oh, I, I've been wrestling, trying to figure out what it is exactly. I really wish I had read the whole thing and then read it again. Cause I, my suspicion is that this is one of these stories that at the end, everything will sort of come together. And I'm, 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 I'm trusting in that. So I'm not giving up on the book. It's just, uh, I'm not at the part of the story where I, I like, you know, so those kinds of questions where you're frustrated. No, like it was just a snooze fest. These chapters, I'm just like pushing myself through, like, come on, come on, come on, get to something, please. I just, yeah. Well, what, so what is it that you're looking for? I don't know. I don't know what it is, why I cannot connect, why I don't feel drawn into this world. You know, like with Wendell Berry from word one, I am just, oh, I'm drawn under his spell. I can't get enough. Never stop talking to me. I don't care what happens. Just don't stop talking. And I'm having like the opposite thing with this book. Like, oh, yep. Adam and Eve. And they're in the Eden and there's Eurydice and still don't care. Like, I just, I don't know what it is. But aren't those the things like, aren't, isn't all that archetypal stuff usually what you want? Yeah, but I'm just, I, it's not being done in the usual way. I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm really, I'm just, I'm struggling to even articulate what it is. The best that I can come up with is it's not the sort of book that I would 
connect strongly with that um, what I'm most, which what I'm most, go ahead. ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, so that ties back to the Lewis thing that it says probably as much about like the kind of books that. Yeah. I don't, I'm not pronouncing a judgment on the work. I mean, I, I, I take very seriously the opinions of other readers who I respect. And so I'm, I I am holding on to the hope. (laughs) Including Barry himself. That's uh, yes. Like I, I have the sense that still, like, I don't know enough yet about this book to make it a cohesive. Like it wouldn't surprise me if I get to the end and I'm like, Oh, oh, that's, that was the missing piece. And then read it again and love it. You know, like that wouldn't surprise me. It's just doing it this way has been very challenging and frustrating. Like the whole time I'm reading it, I just feel like I'm missing something. Um, Heidi, were you going to say something? Sure, no, I'll I, say something. No, no, no. I, thought, I, I thought I heard you start to say something a minute ago, but I well, no, I think I was no, I know, right? Um, I think I was probably just listening thoughtfully, and um, I, I think that that is. I mean, we talked so much about this last time that how valid it is that different people connect with different books and you can say, I can see how I can see that this book is good. It just isn't my favorite. It doesn't connect with my experience, but I would see that as again, evidence of how much the the question of the the reader's experience matters, not what, not in judging how good the book is. And I hear Angelina saying that very clearly, Mm -hmm. like she's not judging the book, but I do think it matters in the sense of, how it then leaves an impact on each individual soul of the reader who reads it, right? And and that's what we're after is getting to that soul of the book. And some mm-hmm. people just can't quite get there with different books. And there's plenty of books like that for me. I love this book. Um, I I thought these chapters were just sublime. And so, and I see the same things Angelina does. I see the same archetypes. I see the same writing. I mean, it's just reading is a mystery mm-hmm. and that's what we're communicating. We're, I mean, we are in some ways trying to demystify the decoding of a book, but there's nothing we can do to control the impact that a specific work makes on the hearts and souls of a reader. No, that's very true. So I was talking about this with somebody who, who knows me pretty well. And he said that he's never met anyone who speaks about literature more religiously than I do. And I've been thinking about that and and thinking about how much the books that I most deeply connect with feel like a religious experience to me. It feels transcendent. Like, so with Wendell Berry from the first word to the last word, I feel like this went from God's lips to Berry's pen to my heart, like just boom, boom, boom. And it's a, it's one giant religious experience. And I can't, I can't get this out of this book. I just can't, I keep trying. I keep trying to come on, like force it, but like you can't force a religious experience. I mean, I just, I I feel personally frustrated that I can't get this book to do to me what it is clearly doing to other people. Hmm. Well, I think it just makes for good discussion, right? I cannot figure out why. I cannot figure out why. I do not think that my, I don't think that I have to read a book that reflects my own personal experience to get something out of it. I mean, I'm not a bachelor barber in Kentucky and I love Jaber Crow. Like, so I, I, I don't think it's that, that should not be an obstacle to being able to read. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I, I cannot put my finger on what it is, and I'm still hoping it'll happen. I'm hoping there'll be something at the end, and I'll hear the hallelujah choir, and I'll be good, and I'll say, oh, I take back everything. I just needed to be patient. Yeah, I mean, I think that Heidi's point about that reading is a mystery, um, so is kind of any art that we experience. There's something of a mystery to to how we... to, to why things move us... Um, like beyond just that sort of like, I like this or I appreciate this. Right. Appreciation. Sure. Um, it's like, yeah. well, it's, it, it's like the difference. It's like, I don't know. This is probably something like, well, I was thinking about this yesterday. It's kind of like in a marriage or in, in a relationship with someone like with your spouse, you, you, you can identify, you can specifically say, these are the things that I like about this person or these are the things that I appreciate about them. You know, I appreciate the way they do this thing in a certain way or the way they talk to me or the way, you know, there's very specific things you can say that you like about them. But if someone says, why do you love that person? You're either going to say the things that you like about them or you're going to be, it's going to be very hard to express what it is that makes you deeply love someone in a way that would cause you to work through all the challenges that come with marriage. Right. And I think that there's something like that with a book, um, with reading where, or with art in general, I think, but where you like, you can identify the things you like about it or the things you appreciated about it. And those are definitely not the same thing, but for the sake of conversation, I'll put them together. But sometimes it's harder to express, to put into words, to name why a book moves you profoundly, like why it becomes a transcendent experience for you. And that's a lot harder to say in words Mm-hmm. Um, like why yes. that barber in Kentucky, the, the male barber and the male bachelor barber in Kentucky can, 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 can produce a transcendent experience for you, Angelina. Like that's, it's a lot harder. You could, I mean, maybe you spend years and years thinking about it. And so then maybe you can start to think, you can start to express it, but it's, I mean, you know, three months into a book, for example, or when you've read something for the first time or the only time or whatever, it makes it, that's a, that's an impossibility, I think in a lot of ways. Right. And that's why I keep having the sense that I wish I had already read it, you know, but, uh, we're letting people see the process of reading in process. So I will let them see this part of the process too, right. (laughs) Where we can, we can have this feeling of frustration and no one would be more delighted than me than to get to the end of this book and be like, ah, Stegner, you old sly dog, you. (laughs) So could you, could you, so going back to what I asked a little bit ago, but like, could you, do you think there's a, there, do you think that there is something that you could even point to that you'd like it to do that would, that you think would approximate, would get you towards that? Or do you think you just need to, do you think, I mean, this is kind of a unfair question, but like, do you think there's, it could be something like you need to, um, rethink your approach to it or your posture towards it. I'm not, that's not, that's not a leading question or a judgment question. That's it. Actually, I'm just, well, I'm actually curious if, if you're being, if you were self-assessing yourself or do you think it's something that the book needs to do to kind of meet you in the middle somewhere? Do you know, do you understand what I'm, does that make sense? No, I do. And I am definitely self-assessing. And uh, I think part of what I'm rubbing up against is feeling like Larry is holding his cards very close to his chest. Mm-hmm. Right. Like even in these chapters, uh, he did the impending doom motif over mm. and over. Eden mm-hmm. can't last. Here comes the serpent. Oh, but yep. wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not going to tell you yet the bad thing that's going to happen. Let's have this fun moment. So he's very deliberately keeping the cards co- close to his to his vest. And um, yeah. and that's fine. Well, you know, he's, that's, that's he's a legitimate sort of narrative subverting. choice. 
he's subverting a lot of that as well. Right. So that's part of why I'm struggling with this sense that maybe once I know everything at the end, right, that the whole, the whole, and, and that, that actually could be part of it. I like to see things as a cohesive whole. Mm-hmm. And then look at the parts where I feel like Larry's very deliberately only giving me the parts and withholding, letting me see the whole, which I presume he, I will see at the whole at the end. Um, so that I think that's also part of my frustration. Also, I personally am not interested in s- discussions of the psychology of characters. I mean, that just has never held any interest in me. And I, and I feel like this book demands that sort of reading. So I'm also butting heads with that because I feel so deeply, strongly, passionately about how much I do not want to do that. What do you mean the psychology of characters? I like to talk about what motivates them, why they do what they do, how different people interact. Like I, those are never questions I ask about a story ever. It's uninteresting to me and distracting, I think. What do you mean? But I know that you guys feel very differently. (laughs) So I've been, you know, just rolling with how you guys want to talk about it, but that is totally not my jam. anybody who's ever taken a class with me knows i don't ask those questions it's just like like to ask the question were you wanting sid to act differently than he did that is not a question that would ever go across my mind so you would so do you so i'm beginning to formulate a uh hypothesis here about why you don't like it i think that the part of it is because he is deliberately um I'll just go with the word I used a minute ago. I think he's deliberately subverting our expectations, our formal expectations. And so that might be... In terms of storytelling? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that might be something that's... Because, I, I mean, I don't think he's particularly interested in those things. I mean, I think probably as a formalist he is, and that's why he's playing with them. It's like a poet who who knows the sonnet, so he can do free verse, right? Um, but I, I think that there is... Um, a way in which he's sort of he's sort of playing with those things and and sort of saying what I'm more interested in is what motivates these people and how they're and how they're evolving and how they're learning to love each other and put up with each other. So like he's far more interested in the psychology of the characters that he's created, and he's offering that psycho that psychology to use your word. Um, I, I would call it characterization. Um, he's doing that. He's offering that up in a way that kind of deliberately excuse. Is, is and and plays with and subverts the formal elements that that are traditionally part of um, pre-modern literature, for example. I think that that's true, and I've been thinking a lot about Gilead as we've read this because you said that she was doing the same thing. Yeah, I think he's being way more overt about it, but right. And I so I, I feel the same way reading this book that I felt when reading Gilead. That same hmm. frustration that the story won't do what I want stories to do. It's, so I was going to say there's something very, you know, modern about that. But then like you love Barry and Barry's the only one of these people. Well, Marilyn Roberts is still alive, but they're all writing contemporaneously. And, that, you know, so I'm wondering if Barry does something formally that is different than. Yeah, th- this is the question I've been asking myself. I don't know the answer. Maybe I'm just a terrible reader. I can't. I mean, <laughs> well, that's I, obviously not true. I, I, that's I, not it. We're, we're, I was about ready to like hang up my shingle, and she's retired because she doesn't no, know no. how to read. Well, no, I'm obviously we're not saying that. We're. Well, I'm curious about like the 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 you know, 
I think I just think it's interesting why people fall in love with books and why and how because you know like all three of us probably have we talk about this all the time actually right even if just off the air but the the, the things that that are draw us to literature are very different between the three mm-hmm. of us and like that's sort of a mystery and I'm like it's um it can be uh um a challenge in some ways to identify like what are the um is there is is one approach fundamentally like more flawed than another mm. but it depends on what you're after i think it depends what you're after i'm not ready to say it's fundamentally flawed i i know that personally i am drawn to things with a very intense mystical element and this is true about everything i read across the board including essays um so something that is deliberately trying to demystify things, which I think this book is, is that is hmm. that's going to feel like a turnoff. To what me. do you mean by that? I think the opposite is true. So I'm curious to hear what I'd love to, and I'm not saying this mm-hmm. argumentatively. I'm just curious what you mean by it's trying to demystify things. <sighs> okay, so. And I'm not uh, trying to put you on the spot. I just think it's no, 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 it's fine. I'm just, uh, I am. I can jump in anytime. (laughs) We can can think through this live. People can watch me struggle with my own mind right here. Well, Uh, I'm trying to, I hope it doesn't seem like I'm not thinking. No, no, no. I don't, no, I'm not taking it anyway. I'm, I'm, I am literally struggling to name the sense that I have. So the sense that I have when I read something, say like Jay Burkrow, seriously, like this is the image that comes to mind. I feel like Wendell Berry is just, has just lifted me up and put me on Zion. And I'm standing there with the stone tablets and God is writing on them. Like that's my image. Just hallelujah choir, the whole nine. I feel like Stegner keeps doing the opposite. Like, like even the way he's doing the archetypes, he's undercutting them in some mm-hmm. ways so that where I might feel transcendent about it, he keeps trying to turn the telescope the other way and, and say, nope, I want to root you in this earth, in this experience with these people. I want you looking at the particular and not the universal mm-hmm. right well, that's, that's exactly you're exactly that's right yeah. yes well on page 193 i'll give probably the most obvious example of what you're describing for our listeners uh at least i think it's the most obvious in this uh in these three chapters um yeah, it is when say. yep i yep i know you know uh so it is when they are when sid and larry have found this you know, Wonderland or whatever, and they're about to dive in. And uh, Sid says, this is the middle of the page on 193. In this case, it was the pilgrim who was more spontaneous in his response. He wagged his head, smiling delightedly, his eyes shining. Then he took off his glasses and laid them carefully on the ground. Now, if he had just jumped in right here, mm-hmm. right? Yep, I, I That's a transcendent moment. That's I a, right. Yes. So if he had just jumped in right here, then we have a mystery to uncover, right, Angelina? However, Stegner tells us and thus undercuts. Mm -hmm. He unbuttoned and tore off his shirt. This calls for a baptism, he said. Yep. Yep. And that's how I feel about the archetypes. Like he keeps... And look, they're Adam and Eve. And look, this garden is Eden. Like, there. Right. So, and the fun out of this. And I like the way I like the way you put that just a minute ago. And again, I think I think that this goes to preference. This is simply an issue. I agree. Right. So, I agree. David and I find that delightful. You find it disrespectful. Am I right? That's Am I saying that true. right? 
I, right? I would have said frustrating, but I wouldn't argue. Like, I, right. I, I, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm not prepared to say that what Stegner's choice is wrong because I don't believe that it's wrong. Right. I get it. I believe it. it's valid. I believe he's handling it well and it's artfully done. It's just mm-hmm. not my preference. That whole scene, I mean, they come out here and he says, this is our sublime moment and we're going to quote poetry and, you know, like, right. and, but then they don't give us the sublime moment. Right. I no, like sublime moments. Go ahead, David. Fuss. What he's doing here it. is so, inc- it's so formal because it's, we mm-hmm. were getting too stuck on what the narrator is presenting for us because it's not the narrator that says the baptism. It's Sid. It's about the difference between the way they see the world. Sid says this is a baptism and he, be- and he essentially believes the way he's looking at the world is that that is true to the way he sees the world. Like he believes huh. what he's saying when he dives in. So he's presenting huh. for, it's not the narrator telling us and making fun of it. I mean, he, I think he, I think he is having fun with it, but it's not Larry that is, that is making fun of, I mean, he's identifying, he's saying, he, he just gets through saying Sid saw the world as the pilgrim and I was the pickpocket. I had to compartmentalize everything. And, and, and whereas, um, it's, uh, it's Sid who's seeing, he like believes in the mystery. Like, huh. It's sacramental to him. He is actually yes. performing a sacrament is what you're saying. Right. And so it's about in his own mind. It, yeah. So what, what Segner is doing is he's creating a formal dichotomy between the characters that gets to the, the absolute heart of the mystery. Um, and, and the way we, and that there is a mystery in the, not just in the way we see literature, but in the way that we see the world and that there, that's mm-hmm. the difference between them. And that's why Sid, like he doesn't, he, it's part of the reason why he can't function in like the academic sense that charity wants him to. Huh. So I don't, th- I don't think that, I don't think that Stegner is, is being disrespectful to the forms. I think he's reveling in them. And I think he's creating characters who embody them. I agree That's- with that. And so maybe if this story was told that Sid wrote it, I wouldn't be having this frustration. Mm, okay. Okay. Mm. Okay. Um, go. Yeah. Keep, keep talking well, that, about that. I thought about that scene, you know, and how Sid is very clearly having this sublime transcendent moment. But okay, it's Larry okay. describing it. So, okay, go ahead. Continue, continue. I think I can answer I this. I, I think I, I can I don't know. I don't know. Go ahead. That's as far as I've got. I don't know how to name it. I don't think it's poorly done. I don't think Stan right. is doing anything wrong. Yeah, yeah, right. no, no, no. I mean, and again, we're just all like, at this point, we're just kind of talking, actually yeah. talking. This <laughs> yeah, yeah. is completely unscripted, y'all. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think what's happening is there's something real. I think it goes back to the characterization because this is a book about, I said on, I said on online, people were talking about the archetypes and I really believe that the archetypes are incredibly rich here, but what Stegner wants us to do is look for the characters and then the archetypes instead of the other way around. Because Mm -hmm. I think what he's doing here is, I think he's layering them one up. Like there's the obvious archetypes that he's referencing and he's creating characters that embody those things. And in doing that, he's in, he's, he's attempting to make the archetypes, um, he's trying to embody them and incarnate them in a way that we can experience through the particular. Um, I think he's yes. trying to embody the universal through the, through the particular. Um, like and think, that is very valid. So why am I so frustrated? Well, I, I well, but I just, I don't, probably because it goes back to the original thing, right? Like we don't, there's not necessarily any accounting for, for taste. And there's a mystery to that. And also you know, I, if, I, if, I think you're, go ahead. No, I just want to say, I think that your point about liking to see the parts after you've seen the whole is super valid. And I think that that, that, may, be, that may be something that resolves it for you. Um, I actually sympathize with you on this one because there's many books um, 
there's many books that other people love deeply, including one particular book that we don't name, remember? <laughs> and I, like, I've been outspoken about not, not liking those books, certain books. And I make fun of my dislike of my quote unquote dislike of Dickens. And what I, what you, what you, when you see a book like, so we have faces or you see works by Dickens and things like that, they don't, there's not that mysterious connection for me there. And, and I, but I, but I look at them and I can say, I see what he's doing. I appreciate that. Um, I, but I think what happens sometimes is when there's not that mysterious connection, it causes us to, to focus maybe more than we would if there were a mysterious connection on flaws. Because we're constantly saying, why do I not get this? And so you start looking for the things that, that, that are not, um, that, that are like holding you back in a sense. No, that's true. And, and also, okay. So I think this is another part of it, which maybe another (laughs) less intense reader would not struggle with. Um, because I do believe that literature is religious, um, and, and so you, so you piggyback that on what C.S. Lewis says about how agrees with, by the way. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, he's not the kind of postmodern reader that I think is uh, undercutting that at all. Yeah. In fact, that's probably contributing to my frustration because I feel like I'm being shut out of some goodness. Like Lewis talks about in experiment and criticism that, you know, if one good person has found one good thing about this book, then mm. I'm going to try to find it. I mm. believe that in my, mm. like, that is my life's mission, right? Mm. And so because people I love, quote. because mm. people I love, love this book, by gosh, I want to love it too. And, and so my frustration is not, I think maybe this will help clarify. My frustration is not the frustration of encountering a bad book. That is, mm. yeah, that's I a, don't, yeah. I don't get this worked up when I read twilight. Cause everyone <laughs> said, read twilight. I'm not at home, like beating the walls. And I'm just like, ah, it's <laughs> rolling your eyes. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, it's not enough to get me upset. But in this case, I genuinely believe that there is goodness here. And I'm frustrated that I am, have not found it yet, that I feel shut out from it. And I, I keep wanting to find the missing thing that will unlock the door to the mystery of this book. I want this book. I want to right. love it. I want to feel it. I want to be transformed by it. So it's the frustration of believing, truly believing that there's something good here and I just can't find it. That's my frustration. How right. do you feel about jazz? Well, and- <laughs> Don't love jazz. <laughs> My theory is true. It's true. Okay, go on. <laughs> David just pegged me. I'm done. That was it. No, 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 no. I didn't peg you. I pegged the book. But this make that is you're oh. proving my point by my own theory about this book that I've coming up with this reading. Heidi, go ahead because I interrupted you, or at least we spoke oh, no. Yes. <laughs> um, well, I do think that something Angelina said quite a few minutes ago was really, really profound, which is this, this is a book that goes from the universal to the particular. And most books are the opposite. Most books, you have to decode the particular to get to a universal. Mm. But this book, as you're saying, kind of plays with it a little bit um, and, and subverts it. But to your point, David, that you made subvert might not be the right word because to subvert means to try to deconstruct. And I don't think that's what Stegner is doing. Yeah. But I do think there is a subversive element to this book. Um, but it is, it it's, it's not to deconstruct. It is to, yes. And, but, and I do think to your point, Angelina, and is that this is a book that people like me who do read psychologically are going to love. And because you cannot read this book and not care about the characters and enjoy it. 
I don't think you can. I don't think that it's possible. This is an entirely character-driven novel, which is a technical term, but the reason that anybody was going to love this book is because they care what happens to these people, these particular people. And I'm going to read you a quote that or something Graham sent me this week. Um, I loved this. He says, he sent me this weird chatting about on Facebook. And he said, the book is all about seeing cracked and complicated people and loving them anyway, which without that empathy, you would never see the visions of beauty in the story. I think that that is... Okay, so why, why don't I care about these people? I want to care about them. What, what, on, what is holding me back? Someone oh. give, just slide the key to me, please, for the love of God. Give me the key. I want the key. I'm like trying to jackhammer this lock open. And it's <laughs> or I think, I mean, sure. Like this, it does make a difference to my enjoyment of this book that I like these characters. But I also didn't think that it's flawed to not because he is pointing out their failures. And I think it, some of it does go to what you are ta- to what we were talking about earlier and that what leads to the mystery of the soul of a book. For some of us, it really is just personal experience. It's probably the easiest one, right? That's probably the easiest thing that takes us into the heart of a book is that we read. Remember when earlier in the, in this novel, when Larry is talking about, do I only like them because they flatter me because they seem to like me? Is that the only reason? Hmm. Yeah. Like in some ways, that's what you're asking, right? Is it like, and, and it's fine if the answer is, well, I can't connect with them because I don't have a personal experience like this. Like I, I think, and I think it's the habit of reading too. Like I, I think of nothing. I, I always think about characters when I'm reading. And if that's not a, a way that you read, it's asking you to do something that you don't naturally do. It's outside and, the comfort zone. Probably. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like a, like a simplified way of putting it, but Right. I think that that's true. And I keep learning from David to pay attention to structure and from Angelina to pay attention to these archetypal elements. And that doesn't come naturally to me. I have to learn. That's a skill I have to learn. Whereas reading psychologically is exactly like, that's how I was made and created by God to encounter the world is to, is to see people. That's what I'm good at. So that's the way I read. So we all come at it in different ways. Yeah. And I think one of the, the, like Angelina has always managed to, you've always managed to like identify things that I don't naturally identify. And it makes, you know, that it makes my ability. I see things I never would have seen or, or that I would like, if I shifted my brain, you know, to a, to a different way, maybe I, maybe I'd see it, but, um, you've all, you have that ability to, to like open up that other part, that other way of reading that I, that I'm, less like I love it, but I'm not, I don't do it subconsciously. Right. Like I don't do it, um, Mm -hmm. without asking myself to do it. Does that make sense? Yes. It's a skill that we learn. And it's true that I, I encounter not just books, but the entire world in terms of big sweeping patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what's exciting for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, I don't want to be shut out of other kinds of goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Me neither. So, um, let's, uh, let's talk a little more specifically. Let's kind of shift gears slightly, I think, because at the end of this section, it's clear that Sally is, um, Mm. 
is quite sick and that some of these things that he's been Stegner and, or at least Larry have been sort of dropping in front of us are starting to come to fruition. Like, you know, that foreshadowing is starting to, um, gather itself. Um, do you think, um, do you think that this book would be stronger or I don't even know if that's the word. I mean, what do you, if he was a little more um, traditional in his approach to the narrative? How do, what do you think of that? Um, or, or is the, is what makes the book or is what makes the work, the work, the book, work, <laughs> the work, work. Um, <laughs> the fact that it kind of is, is um okay so i'll just i'll just explain my uh my theory yeah so angelina said she doesn't like jazz i think this book is jazz Mm -hmm. um so i think it makes sense angelina given that that you just like i when you said that you when you said you didn't like jazz i was like okay that makes sense i think what he's doing here is a literary sort of um version of what of what jazz does um and you mean experiments off the form yeah and like um i mean jazz is a big thing and there's lots of different versions of it and it's evolved um but it's essentially kind of like taking you know traditional forms um and traditional skills and traditional even folk music not folk music like bob dylan folk music but folk folk music and um, playing with it and, um, overlapping patterns and doing things that, that, um, are sometimes they feel like they're sub they're subverting something traditional, but, and sometimes they are just like sometimes postmodern music is, but like, to me, this is like the miles did, this is like miles Davis of literature. Hmm. Um, like there's a, there's a precision to what, to what it's doing in a way that's like, in fact, I was just, I was just interviewing Ken Myers the other day up in his studio and he was talking about how if you listen to Miles Davis's most famous album, the guy that's playing the piano, I think Bill Evans was it, had been listening to a lot of like classical pianists. And so he brought all this stuff, all the stuff he'd been working on and listening to and practicing and, you know, doodling. And he, he brought it to Miles Davis and he said, check out this stuff from like the 1700s. And when you listen to the album now and you know that there's all this like classical, um, stuff going on in it. Um, Hmm. and so I think that that's sort of similar to what's going on here. I think that's a really good analogy because jazz is one of those things where I appreciate the idea of it and it sounds cool and it sounds worthy, but I just Mm -hmm. can't get myself to groove to it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like it's one of those things that I feel like I should love. Hmm. So now we've got to figure out what's, what book is blues? (laughs) (laughs) Are you a blues fan? Mm-hmm. I can like some blues. It doesn't sound noisy to me like jazz does. Do you do you, that? I, I like that. Like, there's a. Um, do you feel like there's like sometimes a dissonance to jazz? Like yes. It creates a dissonance? Like you, there's so many different patterns happening. I can't find the main thread to focus on. Huh. Which is, I, I guess, a similar experience to what I'm having with with the book. I don't hmm. dislike the characters. I just don't feel emotionally connected to them enough to really care what happens one way or the other. That's very interesting that you say that. Go um, go ahead, Heidi. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's what I was going to say. Like that's, that makes sense. We keep going though, because I feel like you have a theory about this. No, I was just going to say that the big yeah. distinction yeah. between like disliking and just not like when you say that you're not uh, connected to a character, um, it, the opposite of that doesn't mean that you dislike them. Right. right. I don't dislike any of them, but nor right. do I like any of them. Well, I mean, that, yeah, I just, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just watching it unfold, but I'm not invested. Like if Sally were to die in childbirth, that wouldn't have drawn tears from me. <laughs> if she yeah. dies of this, it also would not draw. Like I, I, I'm not experiencing, uh, Oh, that's probably another thing that's happening. I'm not experiencing the emotions of this character any of them. And I, I need to feel the emotions of characters. Oh, that's probably a big part of this. Well, that's probably a big part of my experience. I need to, yes. Jaber Crow is dripping with pathos <laughs> dripping. You can wring that thing out and take a bath in the pathos. This book has nothing like that. Well, and one thing I noticed last week when we were talking about this, about Sally specifically, I'm glad you brought this up is that when David and I were saying, we really like Sally for whatever reason, this, this, or this, like you were saying, but I can't get behind her eyes. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so like that's, that makes a difference to you. If that you makes are a huge difference to me. Yes. Right. So it's to you, you're not saying is Sally's personality or character being revealed? The answer to that is yes. Right. But do I know her? Do I experience what she's experiencing? Do I feel what she's feeling and respond how she's responding? And that's a very different question from is the narrative revealing the character of Sally? Hmm. And I was saying, I like that because I think that Larry is protecting her. He's showing restraint. He isn't exposing her. But that's a different question. But to you, you're like, well, that's the whole point. I can't get behind her eyes. I don't know what she's feeling and thinking. Right. So I think those are two different responses to the characterization again of Sally. And that speaks to the whole novel. Yeah. I, I really need to feel an intense emotional connection to characters. And uh, the fact that I can do it in something like the Odyssey is so odd because it's not written in that way. And yet I, I, I do feel empathy. I, I do feel you know, the everyman journey there. I feel like I'm going through this with them. I feel uh, that's another part. I feel like I'm an observer, but not really in the world. That's a big part of literature to me is feeling, feeling like I've been brought in. I felt like I lived in Port William for all of those books. I, you know, I said this on the Hannah Coulter podcast. I learned to love by being loved by Hannah Coulter and loving the things she loved. I felt like I could put on Hannah Coulter's skin and live that life. I can't feel that way about any of these characters. And again, that might not be a flaw, might be very deliberate. But those are the sorts of things I'm used to doing when I read. Having at least one character, and and at the very least, the narrator. So I'm seeing, this is odd. Let's see if we can unpack this. Almost always, by definition, a first-person narrator, you're going to have a strong attachment to. By definition, it's one of the reasons why you should not write a book from the first person perspective of a villain, because you will naturally identify with the villain and it messes with your whole sense of justice and who to root for. So why, why, why don't we, why don't I feel like I'm really seeing the world through Larry's eyes? I mean, this does not feel like, well, maybe that's not true, but I don't know. I just feel like I'm even an observer of Larry, which is weird because it's a first person narrator. 
I want to love Stegner. Have I made that plain enough? <laughs> I feel like he's like captain of the football team. And I'm like the nerdy freshman girl. Like, well, he just look at me. You know, like, I just, I want to love you, Wallace. Why are you doing this to me? We could be mm. so happy together if you would just well, be different. There's a very telling conversation between... Um, Larry and Sally. Do you guys remember where that is? It's in, uh, I believe it starts on 175. Okay. This is when they're um, talking about charity. Yeah, yes. Sally's, now that yes. Sally's laying excited. down the law. That, that got me excited because that's the first time we saw some real juice between these two. Right. Well, and I think that it highlights something that we've probably, probably a lot of readers have been thinking, but Sally is the first one to actually say it. And that's the comparison between Mm -hmm. the similarities between uh, Larry and Charity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I am... It starts, so there's a section break on 175. Says, Sally and I walk the trail. Right. And she says... Um, she tells him not to, oh, where is it? Well, she says not to challenge charity. Right. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, let's not spoil the trip arguing about how we can't do. Well, she challenges Larry about, um, in the middle of 179, when he is speaking negatively of charity and he thinks it's just because he's being a good friend to Sid. And she says, no, you are being superior. You are being scornful of both of them. It's Mm -hmm. sad. That's what it is. She wants to be proud of him, dot, dot, dot. And here's the line that makes me love Sally, (laughs) but she's getting afraid. And the more afraid she gets, the more she tries to put her will into him. That is so, that, I mean, that nails it, right? This is the woman who sees both of them. And I have to say, my, I have a very, very girlfriend who is a lot like my husband. We talk about that a lot. Like she likes these kind of people. And she is- We always laugh and that Graham and, Graham yes. and Bethany are like very similar. Yes. And Emily and Scott are very similar. So this is, like there's, I think that just- I love these characters. They're beautifully drawn. And, but it's Sally who names things in the midst of this conflict. She's the one fetching the tea to make peace. She's the one talking to her husband saying, Hey, I get it. She's afraid. Now who else is afraid right now? Larry is. So he's being kind of a jerk. So (laughs) one of the things that I think he's doing with the way he characterizes characters and helps us get to know them is, um, is, in through absences and we've talked about that a little bit but like for example on 178 after this conversation he creates a contrast between sally and charity and it's the contrast between sally and, and charity that i think are where he reveals the most about her in a way right. that is um still respectful of her when sally is annoyed he writes she seldom flares up she right. smolders well let her smolder i've said nothing but the truth which i would be as happy to see changed as she would Hmm. We walk in silence. So like just that line, we walk in silence. Yep. 
Like yes. there's no way that Charity walks in silence, right? Right. Up ahead, Sid is slashing again. Charity follows behind like a dutiful, subservient wife. Is she doing penance? Right. So, like there's these highs and lows with Charity, um, and like the highs and lows are accompanied by like um, almost like a, a a guilt on the one hand when she like she's like a puppy dog or something, and then sometimes it's like this this um, the flare up right, right. That, that he references, and so the fact that Sally Sally's um, sort of even keeled nature is sort of like essentially undramatic. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, yes. Well, and she's doing, don't you think that that's something charity would say about Sid, about Sid when Sid is annoyed, he seldom flares up. He just smolders. Well, let him smolder. I've said nothing but the truth. Would I be happy? You know, like there's, right. There's right, yeah. even a, di- this mirror dynamic. Of- oh yes. I thought Larry was acting just like charity by, by getting Sally worked right. up and then just leaving her there. And well, Charity and, the reason, and Larry are storytellers. They're very right. storytellers. Right. And the reason is because they're both afraid. Right. Like this, this, that's so insightful of Sally, this entire dynamic of this weird trip is happening because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And the two people who control the future are scared to death. So now it's all awkward and weird. So hmm. that I just, so in, I think in many ways, one of the reasons to, to Angelina's point about being behind the eyes of the first person narrator, I'm not really sure that Larry knows himself as well as he thinks he knows Charity and Sid and everything. Think- yeah. Well, yeah. let me just comment on that quickly. I think that he, I think that there's a, one of the things that's complicated is I think he knows he can look back at himself and know himself a lot better than he knew himself then. And so when he's describing himself in the moment, he doesn't know himself, but looking right. back, he's observing things about himself and his own weaknesses that he, he like, he's not afraid to draw very clearly his own flaws as a character, which is, um, you know, this side of a, uh, like a film noir detective, that's not particularly uh, common. Mm. But he's still not saying it about himself. He's reporting the conversations, but he's not saying, he's he's not naming it the way Sally is. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And then... But he's still not hiding it, right? He's revealing it throughout the story, but not in an overt way. Like, hey, I, I realized at that moment that I'm just as scared as Charity is. I'm being kind of a jerk, right? Like, there's he doesn't say that. Um, we see <laughs> right. it, but um, yeah. And then we finally get that moment where it's Charity against Larry, right? Yes, the, which is about great. the chicken. About the and- chicken. Charity raised her head and looked at me. The morning was still with us. It was her against the world, or at least against me, since I was male and Sid's coad, coad. I don't know how to say that word either. I was hoping you were going to say it. Co- coad, <laughs> I think, yeah, whatever. Uh, coadjutor. Coadjutor. Mm-hmm. I, I like, I can hear it, but I can't actually get the right. words out of my mouth because I can't speak English. Um, she had learned nothing by following her compass course. Um, which that's like kind of a brilliant line because it's mm-hmm. particular and universal. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, so we get those, we get them put in, in contrast with one another and then 
you know, like the, one of the things that's interesting is we get a lot of conflict that gets very little payoff in this book, which I think is probably right. like true of real life most of the time. Right. Or even like marriage, like yeah, sometimes the, the whole point is like, do you have conflict and it doesn't, nothing happens. Like it doesn't lead to, you know, like you don't actually go to war it, or it doesn't, right. it doesn't lead to like, you know, the falling out. And the question is, how do all those moments build up? Right. That was actually something I did like about this section, how much Larry sets up the impending doom in a way that mm-hmm. you think Charity and Sid are going to blow up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or that Charity and Larry will blow up. Yeah. That that's going to be the big yeah, thing. Yeah. And then it's not, no one blows up. They're having this great time of reconciliation and joy. And then something happens to Sally. Right. And then eventually he even says, you thought it was going to be like, if I was yeah. writing a normal story, everyone would be saying right now, Oh, what's, what's the weird romantic thing that's going to happen? Like the relationship twisting that's going to happen here. Right. Um, but that's not, that's not what the story is about. Yeah, that was great. I thought that and was I so do good. Like that kind of stuff. You actually find that a lot in, um, ancient and medieval literature, like in Beowulf, it's the constant, you know, uh, yes, they beat the monster, but in two months, this place is going to burn to the ground. So don't get too excited. Like that's, that's an ancient storytelling technique. I I like that. And I liked the way Stegner did that. So it was, um, it it was well done. I thought that he leads you to expect that these couplers are going to explode and then they don't. And I did like the section, the page after the chicken, where we get, find, we get a nice little chunk of uh, internal narrative from Larry, where he admits that he doesn't know charity as well as he thinks he does. As she's yes. not this stubborn thing that cannot be moved. Right. That she, she can be moved. And then you find out from Sally that she was mad about something else, which, uh, so I thought that fit in with another motif in this section, which was that, what Larry is seeing of charity is not the whole story. Like he only saw her being unreasonable and did not right. realize that this was simply part two of last night's fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the same thing when he sees the two of them walking naked together and he sees how different Sid and charity are in that moment than any other way he's seen it. And now suddenly their relationship dynamic makes sense. And in fact, I even thought, uh, that charity became far more sympathetic in that little moment than anywhere else in the book. Because all of a sudden I thought if charity sees Sid, like Larry sees Sid right now, kind of this like God among men, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Well then no wonder she's fighting so hard for the rest of the world to see him like that. Yes. Even if she's doing it in a way that's not helpful. Right. I understood that intense urge that she felt right. To, want to make something of Sid, not because she thinks Sid is not anything, but because the opposite, right? She has this very high opinion of him and just wants him to live up to who he is or who she thinks he is. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yep. I agree. What did you make of that little line on the bottom of 186 when he slides out of his sleeping bag, like a snake out of his skin? Well, yeah. Right. Is he the snake in the garden? Right. That was... I didn't draw any conclusions about that, but I noticed it. Well, you know, it's set up very Paradise Lost. So if they're in Eden Mm -hmm. and there's the scene in Paradise Lost where Satan is just, um, you know, he's the voyeur in Eden and he's watching Adam and Eve. Uh, Now, what happens in Paradise Lost is that he's moved to jealousy. And so he tries to destroy it, which didn't happen to Larry in this section. Um, There's a lot of motifs that I'm just not sure where they're going. But yes, that there was that element, too. 
Right. So here's what I'm wondering on the next page. I haven't thought of this before, so feel free to shoot this down on the, the, he slides out of his sleeping bag, like a snake out of his skin. And then on the next day, he doesn't want to join them. Um, Sid, he, he has the instant perception that if Sid looks over and sees him, he'll bellow for him to come over. Cause you know, whenever Sid is being a God, he's always bellowing or roaring or making some kind of very masculine noise. Um, and uh, and he says, and I don't want to for complicated reasons. Perhaps I am uneasy with broad daylight skinny dips. I am pretty sure charity would be too. So again, there's that connection between charity and Larry, him knowing I don't want to be exposed and neither does charity. Hmm. So that could be why. You know, that could be a clue, which I already think this true, that he doesn't, he is unconsciously revealing himself through this narrative, not consciously. He's not doing it so that he can tell people what he thinks about their friendship. He's doing it. He's hiding himself. He's not comfortable with skinny dipping and he knows charity wouldn't be either. Although Sid would be. I think that's and telling. he worries that Sally would be. Remember earlier when yes. he imagines that they're having midnight skinny dips? Yes. When he's not around. and and. They're not you know, self-protective the way he and Charity are. So to bring the envy thing in, so we've, huh. had the, we've had the motif here of the two Sids. And so now it's come to like probably its fullest expression, Sid dressed and Sid undressed are like two completely yes. different people, right? And he sees, now he feels like he's seeing the real Sid. And I think he's terribly intimidated. And all there have been all these little hints along the way, as we've seen, of, of him wondering if Sid's not wooing Sally, which mm-hmm. I think is probably not really happening more. It's his own insecurities. Like, obviously, Sally would choose a man like that. Um, I think he's also so, looking at archetypes. and He's saying, like, if this archetype came true in yes, real life. Yes, yes. That's, and that's why he kind of flips it around when he gets to the story. He's like, in my head, if I was reading this, that's what I would expect. And so in real life, I'm expecting that to happen too. He's reading real life like he'd read one of his books that he's teaching. Mm, right. And it, it is a more interesting story that it didn't blow up in the way we might expect. Well, one of the things that's interesting is that it even says, exhilarated by the sudden, the sudden solution to the Morgan problem, we decided not to move on that afternoon. So had they had something really blown up, they would have kept moving on and, you know, who knows hmm. what would happen with Sally, but instead they stayed where they were. And b- because there seemed to have been a resolution to, to Larry and, or to Sid and, and charity's problems. And then Larry and Sid go on their excursion and find this beautiful place. And you start thinking about what leads from one thing to the next, both in real life. Like, and he says, you know, the next thing is always more surprising than we think it's going to be. Right. It's never exactly how we plan it. But even when you're thinking about how you craft the narrative of a story, how do mm-hmm. you lead one thing onto the next? It's it's like that's the I mean, that's that's hard when you're telling a story to your four year old, right? <laughs> how do I get the next thing to lead on to, to the like if I want to go somewhere, how do I get it there? Right. Um, and sometimes you have to take a sharp turn. Right. It's also interesting what Larry does uh, with charity in this chapter, because he starts off this chapter portraying charity in just the worst possible way. Right. She seems pigheaded and mm-hmm. obstinate and, yeah. uh, you know, and but then at the end, he takes the same pigheaded obstinateness. Right. But makes it a virtue. 188. Being who she was and as honest as she was, charity had obviously made up her mind to admit her mistake and not make that particular one again. And when she made up her mind to do something, it stayed made up. 
right? That's the same charity we see at the beginning, except she's being stubborn about something stupid. And now she's being stubborn about I'm going to be good. Right. But it's the same trait. Right. Well, and then you have, again, her rebaptism, right? We loved her all over again as Mm -hmm. fresh as new from the moment when she came like laughing Venus out of the water of what I remember as Tickle Naked Pond. And again, he, so that's just a beautiful sentence. I just want to applaud it because it ends with his false memory, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But he's admitting it. Um, I, I just... I just feel like every, almost every sentence in this chapter is masterful, um, but what, that one particular. Can you go to the go to one ninety four. This is right okay. at the end of the chapter. It's the top there. So they're so they're in the water, and, and he's just been talking about how. Um, then by they, I mean mm-hmm. um, the men. They're in. They're in. They've been swimming around in the water, and he just gets through talking about how um, Sid sees the world with rever, rever, reverentially before hmm. all the traditional world word magic is what he says. And I would steal it if I could. So he, he wants to let, you know, there's something um, like Sid is a true poet because he, yes, he is in awe of the things around him. Um, whereas Larry realizes that he's a poet in the sense that he creates, he uses all that to create something formal. Hmm. Something. It's, pu- it's purely structural. Now the best poetry is the thing that combines the two, right? But he, and that's where we don't know just how skilled Sid is at that. But what Larry is observing in himself is a lack of that awe, a lack of that reverence. And that's something that would be similar to charity. But then on the next page, it says, this felt like, a, well, it felt like a purification mm-hmm. before the next fateful, hopeful chapter of our lives. Up to our chains in the water that foamed through its marble bowl, tiptoeing the smooth bottom to keep our noses above the surface. The light wavering and winking down on us and flickering off the curved walls, trees overhanging us in the sky beyond those, and all around and through us, a soul massage. The rush and patter and tinkle of water and the brush and break of bubbles. It was a present that made the future tingle, which this, of course, references the very first line of the book about the trout coming up Mm -hmm. through the water again. And he talks, you know, there's even the, like the tinkle of the water, the break of the bubbles and all that kind of stuff. What I didn't know as I stood blissful in the foam was that I had begun to foam too, though I hadn't yet felt the salt. I felt it soon enough. What do you make of that little bit there? Because it's clear that like in the moment, sometimes we experience the world as if it's going to be something meaningful, right? And like, it feels like we're experiencing a transcendent moment. Um, yes. Just and it's how do you, who's to say when that happens or how or whatever. Um, what do you make of that last bit though? I think we can right. talk about that first bit a lot. What, the, I hadn't yet felt the salt. Um, what I didn't know as I stood blissful in the foam was that I had is that I had begun to yeah. foam too. Yes. So I hadn't yet felt the salt. So he earlier in this chapter talks about the slugs, yep. the slugs that fill the salt and they foam up. So he's he's talking about both sides of that coin, right? That sometimes it's the destructive bubbles. Mm. And so he's he's being eaten up because Sally's very, very ill and he doesn't know. Right. Yep, so I wrote this down. I don't remember what page it's on, but I wrote the quote down. You can plan, this is to your point, Angelina, you can plan all you want to. You can lie in your morning bed and fill whole notebooks with schemes and intentions, but within a single afternoon, within hours or minutes, everything you planned and everything you have thought to make yourself can be undone as a slug is undone when salt is poured on him. And hmm. right up to the moment dissolving into foam, you can still believe you are doing fine. Right. And that, so, yes, yes. So this, this line references that, yes. Right, it does. And the other 
image that I got, and I don't know if this is intentional or if this is just my own connection, is to the Little Mermaid, the Hans Christian Andersen, when she dissolves into foam on the sea at the end because she has schemed and planned and it has failed. And she's dissolving into foam. I, again, I don't know if that's just mine or if he put that in there because well, he, who, he does I mean, reference frankly, I don't this. Care. Like, I know, right? <laughs> like that's, that's, I mean, that's us. I mean, sure. It's great if, if he did it and like, I'm not right. saying science that we, of relations. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying that he should, we should assume that he did that, but that's a connection. Like that's, I'm not saying he's purposefully making an echo, but that's right. why we read good things because the echoes come up from within us, right? As we yes. read one good thing after another. And like he certainly very, very deliberately put a lot of fairy tale references in this section, the fairy godmother on the Cinderella, like, so, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's not out of the realm of the way to read it. He's inviting that reading. Right. There's, there's even like a fairy tale element. I'm surprised you didn't say this, Angelina. There's a fairy tale element to the way they were wandering around the woods. Right. And then they get yes. lost, and then, but then they find their way out. They like find the farm. And like when I was thinking about when I read the part where they find the farm, then they, they, they find the farmer who chops the head off. And all that. I was thinking like, yeah. in a way that could have easily been Hans, like Hansel and Gretel finding yeah. the yeah. candy, you know, well, I mean that the witch this like everybody I'm, I butchered the original story there, but um, <laughs> Well, wandering is an archetype that leads to death. And that is what this section has ended with. She's a near death state. Right. And I don't believe that it's a, I mean, the American, the, the archetype of American literature, in my opinion, is the water in the woods. It's mm. the fundamental American archetype, oh, I believe. Interesting. And so I don't think that that's lost on him that he sends them into the woods. I mean, like, there's no reason to send people in 1935 into the woods to have them. To have <laughs> in New sick, England, right? in old enchanted forest. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, like he could have, she could have gotten sick. Like they could have been swimming or something. And the rain, the rains come or they go to the beach. Like he puts them in the woods for a very specific reason. But, and you know, well, this is like, this is from, from the earliest days of American literature and it all, it comes from the fairy tales. It comes from, you know, the Germanic and European fairy tales, but then it becomes the Americans really took it and ran with it. We talked about it before, but it goes through Huckleberry Finn and, you know, this is written in 1989 and it's like a motif that the American writers cannot avoid. And I think it's because of the wilderness that's all around us all the time, but um, yes, American motif is wilderness and in, in British literature, it's the garden. Right. Right. Yeah. That is, is there anything he does here with gardens? Well, well no. he calls so it Eden. Eden but, yeah. yeah, right. The Garden of Eden for sure. Well, and he, he remember how Sid gets so excited about that path that was, mm -hmm. and it was tamed and now it's going back into wilderness mm. and how much that captured his imagination. You, you know what the, the, so there's that last line of what we read, good fortune, contentment, peace, happiness. Have never been able to deceive me for long. I expected the worst and I was right. So much for the dream of man. And that huh. goes back to the idea of that line about order earlier. Yes. Um, order is the dream of man. So he's yeah. just like charity. <laughs> but chaos, but chaos, which is only another word for dumb, blind, witless chance, is still the law of nature. And so if the British, you know, there's a the English motif of the garden, it's all about order, right? Hmm. Um, and, yeah. and peace mm -hmm. and tranquility and contentment and happiness and good fortune. Right. But, and then, but for the Americans that it's, there's, there's a wilderness that is based on dumb, blind, witless chance. That's still the law of nature. And it's always threatening to return civilization back to the wilderness in America. Yes. You don't see yeah. that in British literature. That's a very, that's a very different motif. Uh, mm. But that's a, that is a big part of America. And, and I can't help but think about the, the argument about, 
what they should do in response to having realized they're lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because <laughs> you true. have you have an authority versus experience argument, right? Um, Charity mm-hmm. is appealing to the authority of Pritchard and the compass, where the others want to go back because probably there's a fisherman trail locally known and we'll be able to find it. So that's that very sort of, you know, intuitive, instinctual fishermen and, and Indians. You'll see that in a lot of uh, American stories. You know, the Indians have the path and the knowledge of nature and how to get around in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and um, we know Stegner's, you know, he's known for being a writer of the West. This is not mm-hmm. a book about the West. But um, some of the themes pop up here in that wilderness is certainly part of it. But you see uh, Larry even reference it. He's like, as a true man of the West, you know, mm-hmm. he, he, yeah, he brings that up a few times. And then he's though he actually like, he's like, no, you'll have to cook the meat this way. And so the, the, um, there's definitely this sort of contrast, this, this um, conflict in a way behind like trying to formalize and order and, um, bring sort of like um, passed on knowledge to nature in a way that can kind of control it, right? And that's what Pritchard sort of represents. Mm-hmm. And that's what charity would—that's what would appeal to charity. But Sid is in awe. He rever—he has reverence for the wildness of it, and he wants to be able to—he wants to be able to. I, I think that's why he gets so upset with her. Is he wants yeah. to just be able to go out in it and be in awe of it and not have to constantly be thinking about how do we wrestle this under control? Because the control, when you put it under control, it is not as interesting anymore. The poetry of it is, is tainted in a sense. Yes. Right. She's trying to think through every possible need they will have. Yes. And he yeah. wants to, he wants to experience the need as it comes up. That's right. So mm-hmm. he's kind of like, well, so what if we forgot the tea, let's live without tea. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then he burns it. That's pretty funny. My favorite, one of my favorite lines is when he throws it in there. He's like, well, I guess we're not going to be out here for months. And he he throws it in there. And then Larry's like, there was a great tea-ish smell there for a while. But by the time she got back, it was gone. Yes. I actually (laughs) could imagine them both feeling slightly anxious about the smell. Like if Sharon were to come back and be like, you burned the tea. (laughs) What's that smell? It's so nice. They had their little Boston tea party right there in the wilderness. But in a sense, he sort of, it almost like, I think Sid's, in a way, he almost protects her. Because if she yeah. comes back and there's two things of tea, it she's She was wrong. wrong. No, yeah, that's he's... true too. He d- Sid never rubs her face in anything. Right. Whereas Larry wants to. But Larry and Charity are the same. Mm-hmm. Right. So why does, why do you think, this is the last question, we got to wrap up. Why do you, so instead of final, final thoughts, I'll, well, do you want to have final thoughts or should I ask my question? Just ask your question. I, I panic every time there's a final thought. <laughs> Heidi, you probably have a final thought. Maybe you don't be tied into this. You can tie your final thought into my question. I want to hear your question. Why do you think that it's, why is it Sally that Stegner chooses for this to get, to get sick while they're in the wilderness for this to happen to? Great question. Such a good question. And actually that ties into what would have been my final thought, uh, which is I wanted to point out that the last two, both, I mean, I guess the last two are both 100% of the two hard things that happened to Sally, uh, her childbirth experience, and then this great sickness that has come upon her happen while she is left behind Mm -hmm. by... Sid and Larry. Hmm. Hmm. That's a great point. And so she is a scapegoat figure in this story, 
she does play the role of the bearer of their sins, right? And um, the most beloved and yet the bearer of the sins of others in this story. Mm. And I don't know, again, if there's going to be an expiation, what's happening next in the story, but there is a sense of Sally's when she is overlooked by her husband, something frightening happens to her. Not that it's his fault. Neither of those were his fault, but they were, they happen when he's not with her. I think that's significant. I thought so too. And I also thought it was really significant that charity stayed behind. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. In what way, Angelina? You, you mean like stayed behind while the two men were off wandering around? Well, stayed behind with Sally, yes. Uh, and that she's there watching over Sally while she's yes. sleeping. And she's the one who figures out she's like, she checks on her. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm not that kind of woman. I wish I was. If my if I was on a camping trip and Heidi, I'm just going to be honest with you. You decide to take a nap. I'm going to let you take a nap. I'm not going to go like, <laughs> you're going swimming. Head. You're going to the baptism. I'm not going to be like, you know what? It's been two hours. Let me go rub her forehead. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you know, don't ever take me into the wilderness. I will not be checking you for sudden fever. But, you know, that just says a lot. Or ticks. Or I will be covered in off and deet and long sleeves and tell you to keep your ticks to yourself. But um, but that speaks to Cherry's character, right? That she, she, she is, she is being kind of motherly to Sally here. And, right. And, um. And she seems like she wants to give the guys some time, right? Why don't you guys go do some guy thing? Not in a mean way, but just like she can tell they want to be alone. So, you know, she's sort of come across as a micromanager. And yet here we see her not micromanaging them Mm -hmm. and staying behind in kind of a protective way. And I guess I'm thinking, too, about how quick Larry is to be like, criticizing charity that you know she which is let Sid live his own life he's not just an extension of you and your desires and yet you know I don't know that he's thinking about his own wife like that hmm. all right well we gotta go <laughs> <laughs> so okay. um Next week, we will dive into part two. It brings us a little bit back to where the book started, um, just for those of you who have not read ahead yet. Um, thanks to everyone who's been leaving the comments, the conversation, um, all the great stuff on on the um, Facebook page. Um, the Q&A episode, I suspect, will be a rousing one, so please continue to leave your questions, and we will go through and uh, try to answer as many as we can and have some good conversation on those in a few weeks. Let's go ahead and just say right now that we'll say our... Um, we'll make that... We'll just remind everyone that the hashtag is um, Close Reads Q&A. Um, but because of the and in that, confusing people, I think we should just call the hashtag... Make it hashtag Stegner. Um, the and part, some people do an ampersand and some people write it out, and it's just confusing the track. So... We're just not going to. So let's just say it's hashtag Stegner for, for the sake of simplicity. So leave your questions there on a, on a thread. And we'll post a thread as well for people to, to, put them, to put them there as well, just for easy, easy reference as well. Um, don't forget about the plays, the thing. Don't forget about the daily poem. Um, if you would leave comments, reviews on any of our shows, we would certainly appreciate it. The starred reviews are very helpful as well, especially if you are a user who is not using iTunes. Um, those ones are less get less comments so every little one uh matters a lot so and finally don't forget about our newsletter if you want to get our newsletter which is going on about every two weeks uh you can head over to closereadspods.com and click the, the newsletter link there and sign up for that every couple of weeks we're sending out um 
links uh, to articles and stories and things like that that are related to the books that we're reading, as well as updates on the schedule and all that sort of good stuff. So again, that's closereadspods.com. And that's it. All right. Either of you want to say anything? If nope. I should, my body should wash up on a shore. Graham Pittman is suspect number one. I missed Graham. I missed Graham today. I wanted him to come on next week, hopefully. We'll have to have him uh, like record a, a video. Only or something. after I have fallen in love with this book. Otherwise, he can kill me. <laughs> Just give me time, Graham. I'm working so hard to get there. Graham is a gentleman. You're going to be fine. <laughs> he'll just ignore you. And well, you, know what he'll do, you know what he'll do is he will smolder. Yeah, I know. Yep. That's right. Yep. Forever. And take bad pictures of me and say he doesn't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I look lovely from nice. that angle. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, for Grand Pittman, for Angelina Stanford, for Heidi White, and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, thanks so much for listening. I'm David Kern. Happy reading, and we will talk to you next week. Thank you.